The sermon lesson is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Our God, we thank you that you do go to such great lengths to get our attention and that your heart is always calling us home. Would you help us to respond in Jesus' name? Amen. So in, 19, in the 1950s, President Eisenhower came up with a massive project plans for the interstate highway system where 50,000 miles of high-speed state roads would be built. And if you've driven on a highway recently on an interstate, you, you know that they're, they're not winding roads. They're not roads that are going to uh, go down and up. They're roads that are relatively straight and flat. But that's not because they were built all in areas that were straight and flat, but rather when they were coming up for the designs of these interstates, they came in with plans to clear out whatever was in the way. They wanted these roads connecting different cities to be as straight as possible in order to facilitate the most efficient transportation back and forth. And so mountains were cleared, valleys were built up, over, river, over rivers, bridges were built, all of this with the purpose to to connect. It was a massive project that we all enjoy its fruits today. I was thinking about just that project as looking at our text this morning because what we find is God is doing a very similar construction project. So think about the words we heard just a moment ago from the prophet Isaiah. We talked 
We heard about mountains being made low, about valleys being raised up, about rough places being made smooth, about a highway being built. Because the problem that that God is addressing through the prophet Isaiah is that something has happened between God and His people and that the way between them has become blocked off. And in order for a connection to be made, a massive work of clearing has to happen. But the message of Isaiah and the message of, of John the Baptist and even of Jesus Himself is not that we ourselves are looking at the problem and the clogged road and we are making something happen to clear away in order to make our way back to God. Rather, the good news that is being heralded and announced is that God Himself is doing something. That God is making this road. God is the one clearing out because God is the one who wants to make that connection. He is creating this highway which gives us a beautiful window into His heart. That's before us. And so this, this morning, we really were giving all of our attention to this, this work that God is doing. And so we want to look at it in three different ways. I want to look at the, the promise of this work, drawing primarily from this Old Testament passage of Isaiah 40, where this work was promised. And then I want to look at the, the reality of this work when John the Baptist comes and Jesus comes. And then I want to look finally at the response to this work. How did others respond before us? And what does it look like for us here and now to respond to this massive work of of road building that God is doing? So promise, reality, and response. So first, the the promise of this this work. World War I was a devastating and costly war. The most devastating up to that point in history. So after four long years, there were over 15 million casualties, untold devastation until a ceasefire was finally issued and all of the parties came together to sign what's been known as the Treaty of Versailles. It's a a peace treaty. But within this Treaty of Versailles, there's a certain clause, Article 231, often referred to as the War Guilt Clause. And basically it goes like this, Germany accepts the responsibility for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied forces have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. Basically, this is saying, all of this is your fault, and you're going to pay for it all. And there, there were good reasons for that. The war came at an untold cost terrible consequences. But while this war guilt clause came with a certain power to assign blame and to make payment, it lacked power in other ways. This war guilt clause did not have the power to build bridges and to bring about reconciliation. And many historians will, will look back at this particular war clause in the Treaty of Versailles and they will make connections of how its inability to bring about healing and reconciliation actually prepared the way for the events of World War II and an, an even greater tragedy, an even greater loss at a, at a much larger scale. 
The prophet Isaiah lived in a time of Israel's history where God's people had had wandered and had made terrible choices and done terrible things. And God's message could have been very simple at this point. Basically, here's everything that you've done wrong, and you're going to fix it. And you're going to pay for it. And I'm not even going to tell you how, and I'm not going to help you out to pay for it. You made this mess in my world. Now you clean it up. And you could say maybe that is the message of Isaiah, at least for the first 39 chapters, because there it is a very stark diagnosis of Israel's wandering and sin and brokenness. And if you just stopped reading there, you might come away with that message from God. But in chapter 40, the, the passage that was just read, there is a sharp distinction and a turn that's made, a change in tone, a change in message, and you see it from the very first words where God says, comfort, comfort my people. Because what we're going to see here is a message of grace, a message of forgiveness, a message of renewal of God saying, I'm actually going to do something drastic and unheard of to fix the mess that you have made. Uh, many of us have been, have been reading and hearing about the, the wildfires uh, on the island of Maui. And one of the problems that the wildfires have, have created is that they've blocked roads. And what that means is that people can't get out and resources and help and medical attention and service workers cannot get in. In order for resources to get in and people to get out, the road has to be cleared. And so what God is saying here essentially through the prophet Isaiah is, I'm going to make a path. I'm going to clear the way in order that the resources of my grace and truth and light and peace and justice can come pouring in and that people might be rescued out. So the prophet Isaiah talks about a time where God's going to make a highway in the desert, filling up valleys, lowering mountains, making rough places smooth. The basic message is, is our God is coming for us in a way like never before. And it's good news. And we see these two characteristics of God pulled together. Do we see God coming in royalty and in might and in power and in justice? But we also see God coming in mercy and tenderness. The language here is used of, of a shepherd. It says he's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms, these baby sheep into his arms. He's going to hold them close to his heart and gently lead those that have young. He's going to bring people back and hold them close. Do you see those, those two pictures that we often have a hard time putting together of of mighty king and tender shepherd, but Isaiah is trying to use different images to, to pull together who God is and His fullness and what He's going to do. So that, that's the promised hope. A promise that God Himself as King would come. Come with power and truth and justice, but He would also come with power to heal, power to hold close. And it was this hope, this hope of God's kingdom coming in a new way that the people held on to. And that brings us to our second point. That, that's the promise of this massive construction project of God making His way back to us. 
But now we've got to look at that the reality, which is what takes up most of, of chapter 3 in Matthew's Gospel. So on the scene comes this man named John. And we're not told a lot about John in Matthew's Gospel, but Luke tells us a lot more about his background and his origin. And listen to what is said about what this person John is going to be about. It said, And you, child, are going to be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. John's life is going to be about being amongst the people who live in darkness and underneath the shadow of death. And he's going to be one who's going to see the sun rising. A new era of God's love and grace coming in. And he's going to be one who's, who's going to point the people to that to say, a new day is dawning. God has come. A Savior is here. And right away, he's a strange character, not just in his message, but in the way he's dressed. We're told that he dresses in, in camel's hair. He's got a belt, belt of leather. He eats locusts and wild honey. And for us reading that, that just sounds really strange. But if, if you were them immersed in their Scriptures, this, this would have rung bells in your own head. That this, this person is actually trying to be something special. Because long ago, there was another major prophet named Elijah who was dressed in similar clothes. Camel's hair, belt of leather. And he was announcing God's kingdom. And so now when John shows up out of the middle of nowhere dressed like this, it's meant to make this connection of, of, of a prophet like Elijah has come. And there was actually another prophecy from Malachi that, where God said, Behold, one day I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before this great and awesome day of the Lord. So when John comes dressed like this, talking like this, it's meant to be this bell ringing to the people saying something big is happening right now. And I want you to be ready for it because it's going to come with a response and a call to response. We're not given transcripts of John's sermons. He must have taught the people a lot of different things. We're given the heart of his message in this one sentence in which he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom is kind of this short word to describe the restorative reign of God through His beloved Son and King Jesus. It was an anticipation of the past, and now John's saying this, this is happening now. What we've been waiting for, hoping for, praying for, what, what history has been building up to, what the, the Scriptures have pointed forward to is now happening as a reality. And John's, way is, John's role is to prepare the people for what is about to happen. Many of us are familiar uh, with the writing of Paul Revere, where tensions had been building in the 13 colonies, uh, between the colonies and the British government, and there was a growing movement that wanted to break away, and Britain didn't like this, and so they were coming with more and more force, and one 
night, Paul Revere goes on this famous ride where he's riding up the coast, and his message is what? The British are coming. The British are coming. Be ready. Get prepared. Because the British are coming, but they're not coming um, uh, with kindness, but they're coming with somewhat of a vengeance to exercise their rule. Uh, John's message is not the British are coming, the British are coming. John's message is God is coming. God is coming. God is coming. God is coming. Be ready. But God is is not just uh, coming with power, but He's coming with love and tenderness. He's coming with might. He's coming with mercy. And here in our passage, John, we have the, the, the experience of John meeting this promised king in Jesus. When Jesus comes up to him and we're told that Jesus comes to John to be baptized by John, which would have seemed completely upside down. And you can see how John is deeply confused because John's message is, come, repent, confess your sins, be baptized, be washed because the King is coming. And so when Jesus comes and asks to participate in this, it doesn't make sense because Jesus doesn't have sin to, to be confessed. He hasn't wandered and then He needs to return. And all seems upside down and backwards. Jesus doesn't need to change His life in any way. Jesus isn't part of the problem. Jesus is the solution. But Jesus' message to John is just let it be so for now, for thus it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is doing here in, in taking part of this baptism with the people is this is the beginning steps of Him immersing Himself in the human condition. Of Him saying, I am one of you. I have come to live among you. I have come to take up your troubles, your sorrows, even your sins upon myself. There's going to be this beautiful joining together between God's people and God Himself. And we're going to see this leading up all the way under the cross where Jesus doesn't deserve to be crucified, but He's there on behalf of us, a representative. And as Jesus is baptized, something unexpected happens. The heavens, we're told in verse 16, they open. The Spirit of God descends like a dove and He hears a voice from heaven from the Father that says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This tells us some of the lengths in which God is going to go to make a way for His people that His own beloved Son would come and be sent like this. We're getting pictures that show us what God's heart is really about. Everywhere we look in our lives, we see evidence that the world is not the way it ought to be. We see it in our work. We see it in our relationships. We see it on the news. And we see it in our own hearts. But God's response is not just, this is the mess that you have made and you need to deal with it. The response of God is to move into the mess to bring healing and to bring hope. That is the message of the kingdom. And at the very center of that is Jesus. And this brings us to our third and and really most pressing point, 
what is our response going to be? As God Himself rings the bell, the choices are very plain to listen and to return, to come home, to respond to the heart of the Father who's full of love and grace and desires good things for us. Or to respond by ignoring and, and pushing away. Going back to the construction imagery, when, when Isaiah talks about clearing away for God, the problem in, in our world and the, the blockage is not trees, it's not valleys, it's not rivers, it's not deserts. Um, the, the blockage happens in here. He's talking about a, a way being made for, for us to, to know God personally. And John's message points to what needs to be removed is, is not branches like we saw a few weeks ago in the storm that came through. And in the aftermath everywhere, people were, were cutting trees, removing them, clearing the, clearing the way. What, what's happened is, is sin has blocked the ways in our hearts. And John's trying to, to prepare the way for Jesus by helping the people see their need. Think about it this way. A few weeks ago, we were um, up, up kind of in the mountains, and uh, we were actually, uh, you, you know, as you're driving through some of these different roads in the mountains, you could see where the roads were cut out. But they didn't just take a stick of dynamite and just throw it at the hill and see how much stone it could kind of blow away. What you see along the road is all these, these kind of lines where the rock has been drilled into deeply. And into that rock, once it was deep enough, once the hole was deep enough, they dropped the dynamite in. And then, as the dynamite sunk in, boom. That's when you saw big chunks flying off and a road being made. John's ministry is to, to drill the hole deep to show the people how deep their need is. Because unless we see how deep the need runs in us, the, the message of Jesus is just going to wash off us. It's not going to make sense. It's not going to be good news. But John's message is, is one that digs the hole deep to show the people their need so that when Jesus comes, and when He announces this good news, boom, boom. But not in a destructive way, but in a beautiful, life-giving, healing, mending kind of way. Some hearts respond positively, some not so. There's some who come who, who want to be baptized, who come confessing their sins and seeing their needs, and others who stand at a distance, to whom John looks at, and these are religious leaders who should have gotten it, and he says, you brood of vipers. Why are you here? Why are you watching other people come and confess their sin. He spoke very strong language because these leaders are going to stir up a lot of trouble for the people. And they're actually going to serve to be barriers for God's people coming back to Him. Going back to what's happening in Maui, there's been a lot of discussion and debate over why the sirens did not go off. So as they have... Uh, on, in Hawaii, they have a system of sirens that are established in order to warn the people for when dangers like this come and when tsunamis come. And they chose not to use them. And there were reasons for that. But 
Um, the question has been, if, if these sirens would have gone off, how, how many more lives could have been saved? Because that's the purpose of those sirens going off. There is a sense of warning to them. There is a sense of warning here to the messages that's presented. Even John talks about Jesus' ministry coming, and he, he talks about Him um, in kind of farmer-like language. He talks about Him having a winnowing fork. Talks about wheat and chaff. What would happen is they, they would pull the, the wheat off, the, the grain off, but there would be this kind of husks that were to it. In order to get the grain to where it could be kind of ground and made into bread, they had to separate those. And so what they would do is they, they, would, they, would, they would beat them and then try to separate them, and then they would toss them up with this winnowing fork. And what would happen is the wind would be blowing and the good wheat would settle down and the chaff would just blow away. This is a picture of, of Jesus' ministry coming to, to separate wheat and chaff. And the question is, how are people going to respond and how are we going to respond? I want to close with just a couple questions uh, for us. If John was pointing to Jesus, then the question that we all face is, who is Jesus? Is Jesus really the beloved Son of God or is He not? Because that's going to change completely how we respond to Him. Is Jesus just kind of a charlatan or a teacher or, a, um, or just a crazy person? Or is He truly the Son of God, the King of kings come that deserves our allegiance and trust and love? Um, will our lives be marked by one of returning or wandering. Now there's two types of returning. One, the returning, the repentance maybe we're more familiar of is that kind of the more dramatic where uh, repentance communicates a kind of change of mind and a change of life. Repentance is a turning away and a turning towards. I know for me personally, there was a, there was a season in high school and even a time where um, my life was going in this direction Sensing God's call, understanding the message, and my life changed significantly. But as I've grown over the years, it's not just repentance that happens once, but maturing in the faith is this constant returning and this constant turning. Because what happens is that the line dividing humanity is not between good people and bad people. That's not what Jesus teaches. The dividing line is between those who see their need and come to Jesus for help and those who don't see their need. And so the bell is being rung. The hand ringing the bell is one that's heart is for us and full of love and invitation and calling. And the question is, how will we respond? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You for Your voice. We thank You for the message of John. We thank You for the message of Your Son and has His life. At the end of this, um, help us to hear. Help us to respond. Help us to live lives of deep humility and gladness whose hearts always practice returning to You. And it's in Your great name we pray. Amen.